It's a joy to be here with you at this conference. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4, and we'll isolate our attention to these with some contextual observations in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. This is a text that deals with the central emphasis of our faith. It's a tractor beam that compels us back to Christ, the Christ of Christianity. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of being with our church group uh, in Israel, and I celebrated my 60th trip around the sun. Are you laughing with me or at me? (laughs) Turn 60 in Israel. It's a pretty good place to turn 60 in Galilee. But I was severely jet-lagged on my birthday and was up about 3.30. And if you've ever been overseas and you hit jet lag, it's no fun. I was up at 3.30. My wife was dutifully enjoying the grace of God in her sleep. And I was dutifully enjoying her enjoying her sleep. And I just stared at the ceiling for a couple of hours and just thought about turning 60. I got to admit, 40 wasn't bad, 50 wasn't bad, but 60 kind of rocked me a bit. I don't know what the amen was, but let's just close in prayer right now. Uh, That's good. (laughs) I took a deep breath that morning and just kind of did some inventory of life and realized that my life is so full of clutter. And I was rolling around life and last year and next year and this year and this decade and last decade and my sons and my grandchildren It was a wonderful time for a few hours there by myself staring at the ceiling of wondering about the next year in the last 60. And I came to the conclusion that there was a lot of clutter. You know what clutter is. We all talk about decluttering and decluttering our house and decluttering our life. Over time, we accumulate things in our house that are unnecessary, unimportant, end up crowding things together that are usually in a junk drawer that needs decluttering or in our garage. Sometimes our whole house needs to be decluttered, doesn't it? You add this, you add that, then another thing and another thing. And before you know it, you have a cluttered space. There are entire books and websites devoted to decluttering. I think most of us know what it means to live in a cluttered space, but have you ever thought about living in a cluttered life? Where there's just a lot of things tugging at time and attention and resources that compete with the most important thing and things in our life. I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's aware, very aware, keenly aware that our hearts can become cluttered and lose focus on the Christ of Christianity, on Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior and our Lord. Christianity is about Jesus Christ, right? It's the good news of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity coming into the world to save sinners from the wrath of God, from eternal punishment, to establish peace between us and God and to give us a vital and a living and an eternal relationship with God. 
And yet the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, would like us to think of Christianity as anything and everything but Christ. He'd like us to think that Christianity is behavior modification, doing better and trying harder, or it's a social alternative to the world, or a movement to solve the social injustices of the planet, or a political moral minority that may turn into a majority to change governments. I'd like you to just take a quick tour with me. Don't try to turn. Just listen to God's word for a moment. Listen to this emphasis, these emphases. 1 Corinthians 2, 1. When I came to you, brethren, Paul says, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Listen to the stacking of these concepts. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, the creation is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Christ lives in me and the life which I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love this pastoral emphasis in Galatians 4, 19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Say this with me. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 3, 7. Whatever things were gained to me more than this, I have counted all things as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Colossians 1.18, that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Colossians 1.28, our message, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man. I love Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is our life, Christ is our life. Grace and peace, Peter said, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, God has spoken in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Open your New Testament sometime. Let me give you an exercise. And let's be fair, don't use the gospels. And let's say that the book of Revelation is a unique book. So somewhere between, you know, well, don't use Acts either. That's too easy. Uh, Start with Romans and, and go to, Third John Jude, okay? Just open up, not tonight, open up anywhere, drop your finger and start reading and see how long it takes you to run into a reference to Jesus Christ. Our faith is about Jesus Christ. Christianity is knowing Christ. It's worshiping Christ. It's obeying Jesus, proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth, who was executed, buried, came back to life from the dead and ever lives to reign in heaven and on earth. It is a faith in him. Now with that as a backdrop, the passage before us should not be a surprise. 
But the condition we find the apostle Paul in should be a surprise. It's a shocking predicament that we read about Paul. Paul is no wimp. He's no spiritual wimp. And yet we read here, Paul is afraid. He says, I'm afraid. This is the one who preached the gospel in the hostile synagogues. This is the one who preached the gospel in open, brutal Gentile marketplaces. He debated on the Areopagus of Athens. He evangelized before the intimidating council of Jerusalem who had murdered Jesus. He had been beaten so badly at Lystra for preaching Christ, he was left for dead. He stood before Festus and Felix and Agrippa, proclaimed Christ. He even proclaimed Christ to a Roman guards, a group of them when he was in jail, holding him at sword point. And in Acts 20, he told the Ephesian elders meeting at Miletus that the Holy Spirit had given him a little insight. How would you like this to be? God loves you and has an interesting plan for your life. Paul, everywhere you go, for the rest of your life in ministry, you're going to have chains and bonds and be beaten and you will die for Jesus. This man said, I'm afraid. Paul wasn't afraid of hardly anything. What would make him shudder? He's described in Acts 17 when they come knocking at Jason's door looking for him. Where is this man who's upset the world? His bravery would would eventually be sealed with a martyr's blood and the blow by Nero to sever his head. I mean, just think about Paul for a minute. When he began his ministry, the empire of Rome was entirely interested in heathenism. And when he died, it had been shaken by the preaching of Jesus Christ from Nazareth. And yet... We show up here in 2 Corinthians eleven three, and Paul says, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. When Paul speaks of being afraid, that ought to get our attention. What was he afraid of? He was afraid that the Corinthian believers would be led astray from, drum roll, Christ. He shuddered over souls and had a real fear that faith could be shipwrecked. You know the background, especially of this epistle. You've been taught well. False teachers had infiltrated the Corinthian church. They were preaching a false gospel. Further, they were doing it by attacking Paul's credibility. They were calling him ugly, discrediting him in everything, in every way they could by what he said, by how he looked, to follow, gain a following after themselves. And in chapter 11, Paul provides the climax of his defense against these false teachers. But at the head of this defense is his fear and his pastoral concern about this flock. By this point in 2 Corinthians, false teachers and professors had gained such a strong foothold in the life and the souls of these people that Paul needed to make a correction And he needed to bleed on them a little bit. He needed to say, you need to hear my heart. I think 2 Corinthians is the most pastorally insightful book in the New Testament. Because you get Paul unedited. You get his heart on full display and God used that letter in inspiration to keep for us. 
It was likely that their gospel was all about the power and glory of Christ for social implications, for while utterly and glorying Christ himself. That's why Paul emphasizes over and over in the two Corinthian epistles, the, the blood, the crucifixion, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But here in this little passage in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, we see Paul's practical personal love and theology on full display. So I hope if you'll allow me to be an introduction tonight to what you're going to hear over the next three days to focus in on what every man is going to be preaching about and building upon, and that is the love and wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to ask five questions tonight, if you want to follow an outline. Five questions to declutter your faith. This is personal. This is arranged after my own musings on turning so ancient and old a few weeks ago. Five questions to declutter your faith. Let's ask these questions together. Number one, have I been desensitized? Have I been desensitized? Paul says in verse three, but I am afraid. In order to understand the force of this, you have to go back to verse two. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul understood himself to be the spiritual father of the Corinthians and Christ as their bridegroom. As you know, during the betrothal period in the ancient Near East, a father took public responsibility for the virginal fidelity of his engaged daughter until the marriage day. By the way, back in chapter one, verse 14, Paul spoke of the day of the Lord Jesus when he wanted to present the Corinthians before the Lord proud himself of their faith. He doesn't say a husband, but to one husband. This is important. Singularity focus on their lordship of Christ. He says, I'm jealous. Not a regular human jealousy, not motivated by envy, not motivated by self-interest. Paul was not like a jealous fiance, a jealous husband, like someone protecting a treasure for someone was his jealousy. I'm protecting this for someone else a deep, emotional, vigorous response to seeing the blood-bought son or daughter of God flirting with any worldview that diminishes unilateral, exclusive devotion to Jesus. It's impressive to me, by the way, that Paul's eschatology has such a working application on his shepherding. He thought about the day they would meet Jesus and that implied and implicated him for how he should shepherd them in the present. This is a jealous fatherly protection Paul had for his flock. I'm afraid for you, he says. I am afraid. You know this word is phobia. We get phobias, phobias, and we get phobia from it. It's terrifying. The ancient roots of this word are interesting. It meant to slap a horse and frighten it. It was phobias, to frighten it, to scare it, to spook an animal. True Christian leadership, by the way, and I mean this as a parent and as a pastor, true Christian leadership in some measure must reflect God's jealousy for his own bride. We're protective, we're jealous. Are you ever afraid for the trajectory, the direction of your soul, the health of your heart? You know, I don't want to be too sentimental about it, but I was laying there in Galilee and for three hours and 
rolling around looking at the ceiling, thinking about my own heart, how distracted it can be, how cluttered it can be. A lot of times with good things that end up crowding Christ out of focus. Are you sensitive or have you been desensitized? You ever get afraid for soul health? Paul was. Second question, have I been deceived? This is interesting. Have I been deceived? Paul says, I'm afraid for you. Then he uses a little parenthetical illustration. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. He uses this epic illustration from Genesis that functions in two dimensions, by the way. It illustrates the point he's making, but it also shows us how most important Paul's view of scripture was. Don't miss the fact that Paul took the Genesis account literally and seriously. Can I say it really blatantly? Paul believed in a talking snake. That was not too fantastical for him to believe. In fact, he didn't give an apologetic for it. He just said, as the serpent deceived Eve, he believed in the account of the fall of man. Let me just say something that I I know that your pastor here has taught you many times. If you have a faulty view of the view of Genesis and the view of Adam as a real historical figure, you have no gospel. Romans 5 says, if you don't have Adam, you don't understand Christ. Paul took Genesis seriously. He believed in a talking snake, and so should we. Even the abnormality of a speaking serpent was not too fantastical for him. You know why? Because it was in the Bible, and he believed it. He says, as the serpent, interesting word, deceived Eve by his craftiness. Don Carson says, when Eve fell... It was not because she was battered into sinful submission by a wicked overlord, but she was taken by cunning. She was deceived. 1 Timothy 2.13 says the same way. She was deceived. Now, I'm not going to get into the deep end of the pool of the fall of man and theologically not, but have you ever wondered, who's at the tree first? Eve. By the way, the text says she gave the fruit to her husband with her, He was there as well. But it looks like at first glance, didn't Eve do something wrong first? No. If Adam was right there, perhaps, using sanctified imagination here, but perhaps the first sin ever committed was Adam's refusal to protect his wife. Adam was our great father in sin. She was deceived though. Different than Adam, she was deceived. She questioned God and offered a lie in place of truth. You know what the first question in the Bible is? The first question in the Bible was spoken by Satan. Did God really say? Did he really say? There's so much here, but can we just take a moment for a practical insight on bibliology do you will you take god's word at face value and believe that it it represents what he said and god doesn't have a speech impediment he said what he meant he meant what he says he's perspicuous he's clear he he knew exactly what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it 
And I think one of the great challenges of our generation is to take God seriously at his word. Paul did all the way back to the speaking serpent. The illustration here is that Eve was deceived. Satan is always trying to trick believers into following a self-centered Christ distancing faith to deceive us into that. And here's the problem. (laughs) We'll see this in verse four. The enemy of our souls uses our words, theological words, and his dictionary. He redefines everything that we say we believe. He's subtle. Rarely does Satan stand up anywhere and say, this is the lie, come and believe it. He says, this is the truth, and it sounds a whole lot like the truth, but it isn't. He uses the phrases of our faith, but redefines them by self-interest, self-adulations, and flattery. He makes error seem reasonable. And the best way to do that is to make people feel good about themselves. It's the age-old protocol of liberalism. Same method as the emerging church that's come and gone. Just liberalism and new clothes. Satan wraps his coils in successive subtleties. That's a good translation for this word craftiness. His ways are never obvious. They're unsuspecting. And we need to raise our radar to see what he's doing. He's trying to deceive us. Paul asked the Galatians, who bewitched you? Who tricked you? Who snookered you? He disguises. He never comes as Satan. You know, I think it's funny. We, we look at these horror movies that have Satan with a red face and, and, and horns on his head. I, I think the enemy probably laughs at that. Satan doesn't come as a dude with a pitchfork. Further down the page, you see verse 14, he comes as an angel of light. He looks like the truth. He disguises himself. He deceives. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44 says. He distracts us by putting attention on ourselves rather than Christ. He distorts. He's a master eisegete. His main attack is by using God's word in a distorted, out of context, incomplete, augmented, and diminished way. He would love for us to think about Christianity just to think about it wrongly. He would love to think for us to think about Christ, but to think about him differently than the Bible presents him. His supreme ambition is to prevent Jesus Christ from having supremacy in your heart. That's what Satan's after. You ever been deceived into thinking less of Christ than you should? Or to think of Christ and Christianity in less than biblical ways or in ways that are not biblical? And do you have a functional bibliology? Do you believe the Bible and take God at his word? Have I been desensitized? Are you afraid? Have I been deceived? Third question, have I been distracted? This is really the heart of the text. Have I been distracted? He says, I'm afraid just as Eve was deceived by the serpent that your minds will be led astray. Your minds will be perverted or corrupted. After the parenthetical illustration of Eve, he now finishes the thought, about his fear, I'm afraid your mind will be led astray. In the last phrase, Paul explains that the target of and ramifications of his godly jealousy mentioned in verse two are simply this. You will forget that Jesus Christ is the integrating centrality of the Christian faith. It's him. 
Listen, I love theology. I love truth. But when we start talking about doctrine, theology, and truth as abstractions, distancing themselves from the person of Christ, all we have is a philosophy, not a person. He says, I'm afraid, look at this, don't miss this, that your mind will be led astray. Christianity is fundamentally rational. Oh, emotions are involved. I felt my heart swell with love for Christ when we sang a few minutes ago. But fundamentally, it's, it's a thinking religion. Your minds, he understood that. Christian minds are the primary target for the assaults of the enemy. We know that, we'll see that here in verse four. He's so crafty. He wants you to think differently and think wrongly than the Bible teaches. I mean, it's just another chance to ask, is your Christianity biblically confined and biblically defined? The fact that Paul made such a big deal out of preaching the cross gives us an idea of the false message. So many expressions of Christianity today have been sterilized of the scandal of the vicarious substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. Led astray, corrupted, perverted. To be led astray is to think about biblical truth in unbiblical ways. That's what it means to be led astray. To think about biblical truths, biblical things, biblical ideas in unbiblical ways. Consequently, there's no way to stress how important it is to be committed to and involved in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. You say, is this the read your Bible more sermon and go to a Bible-teaching church sermon? Yes, it is. You caught me. He wants to distract us. Have I been distracted, led astray, corrupted? You know, I was thinking that, that morning, two weeks ago when I was laying in bed that morning, about when I was first saved, I was a Jesus freak in a wonderful way. I didn't know anything different than to tell people. I remember being converted uh, on, on a weekend and I went back to track practice on the Monday and my friend was, uh, we were doing um, 440s and that tells you how old I am, not 400s, but 440s. Some of you guys will understand that. Um, we were, and we were walking 100 yards in between and I was telling my friend about Christ and I said, you're not gonna believe this. I used to think and I went to church, but now I, and Jesus, he died for me and I, I'm just exploding on him. And he says, dude, you are a Jesus freak. You need to calm down. Oh, could I learn something from that 16 year old Jesus freak? Have you been led astray from Christ? Distracted. Number four, have I been desensitized? Have I been deceived? Have I been distracted? Number four, have I been dislodged? And this is the, this is the crux, dislodged. I'm afraid you'll be led astray from the simplicity and purity, the New American Standard says, of devotion to Christ. Literally from the simplicity and purity to Christ. Simplicity, single-mindedness. Have you been led astray from being single-minded about Christ? distracted from him, dislodged from him. What dislodges your devotion to Jesus? Have you thought about that? What are the things that compete for the lordship of Christ in your heart? If you don't know them, I can assure you the enemy of your soul does. What dislodges your devotion from Christ? Hobbies, laziness, sports, children, even theological pet peeves? 
I'm a seminary professor, along with Pastor Richard. Sometimes you get young men who are so curious and so animated about theological nuances that they never talk about Christ, only the things of Christ. Linsky writes, the picture is that of a cloth that is smoothly laid out so that no fold hides anything under it. This single-mindedness, rather, refers to Christ. The mind and all its thoughts are solely and singly set upon him in love, loyalty, and devotion. And there is no duplicity which secretly turns to another, end quote. He uses the second word, purity. It just means pureness, unsullied, uncompromised, holy, loyal, appropriate, The context here indicates that Satan in his wicked craftiness aims to introduce duplicity and spiritual clutter into our thinking about Christ and dilute and defile our thoughts of him. Can you back way up for a second? When you look at the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with two main problems in that church. They were confused and they were contaminated. They were confused about theology. So 1 Corinthians, he, here's the theology of marriage. Here's the theology of singleness. Here's the theology of preaching. Here's the theology of the atonement. Here's the theology of morality. Here's the theology of, 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 of Christ indwelling our, our hearts. Theology, theology. He was correcting bad theology because they were confused. But they were also, secondly, contaminated. They brought the lifestyles of the world into the church with them and didn't see a need to change that. I think we can learn a lot from what Paul did to correct the Corinthian body because you and I are always confused and always contaminated. We can always be clarified in our doctrine and our theology and we can always deal with the contamination of the world we brought into the church with our hearts. Think about, (laughs) think about who Paul is talking to. This is the first generation of believers. J.C. Ryle says it like this. Who would have thought that under the very eyes of Christ's own chosen disciples, while the blood of Calvary was hardly yet dry, while the age of miracles had not yet passed away, who would have thought in a day like this, there was any danger of Christians departing from the faith, end quote. But they did. What did they depart from? Simplicity and purity to Christ, of devotion to Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, the soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. It is never weary of him. I think the chief pastoral concern of every faithful shepherd is to rivet the hearts of our people's affections to the person of Jesus Christ. Can I just take a little theological aside here for a second? You understand that everything we've said here assumes a significant historical and theological fact, and that's the fact of the resurrection. Why would we rivet our minds to a dead person? (laughs) Why do we have affection for someone in the grave? The most significant question you can ever ask or answer is this. I talked to our church in Israel just a few weeks ago. How do you answer this question? Where are the bones of Jesus? Your eternity depends on that answer. You know where they are? They're not in some ossuary in a bone box that has his name on it, some 
scholars purporting a few years ago, I know where the bones of Jesus are. They're in his resurrected body at the right hand of the Father. I think what Paul is doing here is he's generating awareness. If, if Christ is alive, that's a game changer. Everything's different if he's alive. He can be related to, he can be known, he can be pursued, he can be encountered. Can I just, just for a second, I won't take long. Can you go over to Ephesians chapter four for a minute? I'm teaching through Ephesians and you're gonna get some leakage here. Have you ever read a passage that you've read a dozen, a hundred times and then you read it with fresh eyes and you say, when did God put that in the Bible? I have never seen that before. This happened to me as I was expositing Ephesians and came to this verse. In Ephesians 4, if you go back to verse 17, he's saying, this is the way you used to, by the way, um, without preaching this passage, how long do I have tonight, Richard? Without, um, without preaching the whole passage, go back to 17, Ephesians 4, 17. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk or live. In the futi- Listen to these mentors. In the futility of their mind, Paul was so concerned about the mind, the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, another mental word, that's in them because of the hardness of their heart, another mental word, the mission control central of our lives. Having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But... You did not learn Christ in this way. Can I just tell you, when I read that, it's like lightning came down on my study. I really mean that. I'd never seen it before. That's not what he should have said, I thought. But you did not learn to act as a Christian this way. You did not learn theology this way. You didn't memorize the catechism this way. Look at what he says. You did not learn Christ in this way. Peter O'Brien says about this. This is incredible. This formulation, you did not learn Christ in this way, is without parallel. The phrase to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Greek Bible and to date has not been traced to any pre-biblical Greek document, end quote. Nowhere else in ancient Greek does it say learn a person, but it does here. The grammar doesn't make sense. You expect it to say, you did not learn to follow Christ this way. You did not learn to serve Christ this way. You did not learn to worship Christ this way or to believe in Christ this way. No, he says, you did not learn Christ in this way. Oh, he keeps going. If indeed you have heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus to lay down. Now he says to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man. Be renewed in the spirit, verse 23, of where? Your mind. There's the battleground again. Is Jesus the curriculum of your faith? Don't replace Christ with Christology. Do you want to know him because he's alive and relatable and begs us to come and experience him? Paul said to know him, not to know about him, not to know the history of him but he's real and alive and to know him. Learning Christ. Parallel passage in Colossians. You've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, walk in him. Jesus was the subject of Paul's preaching. Again, Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim him. I think, very honestly, the most critical error to avoid 
in life and ministry, public and private, is neglecting the person of Christ in our faith while talking about our faith. What does the writer to Hebrews say? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Do we fix, do we locate our eyes on on the living resurrected Savior? Is he our focus? Jesus is our message. He is the one we proclaim. And listen, if we don't communicate the right message, we will create the wrong allegiances. How can we practically equip ourselves to know him? Well, you know intuitively. We study and learn of his truth, his, his deity, his character, his humanity, his claims, his teaching, his miracles, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his responses to life, his responses to death, his grace, his influence, his virgin conception, his all-fulfilling satisfaction, his gospel that is all about him, through him, to him, and for him. You ever thought about every person you ever get to know and know better, the more you get to know them, the more flaws you see about them. Not Jesus. The more, the more we see him, the more we know him, the more we study him, the, the more wonderful and precious he becomes. One of the strangest verses in the New Testament to me, you remember the, the flow and the, Jesus has the last supper with his disciples, the Passover meal. He goes to Gethsemane and as they're standing right before he goes into his passion at Gethsemane, he prays with the men. And he prays in a way that's shocking. We call it the high priestly prayer. This is the real Lord's prayer. Think about this. We call the Lord's prayer, Matthew 6, our father was starting in heaven, hallowed be the thing. That's not the Lord's prayer. Jesus could never pray that prayer. Forgive us this day our debts, our, our trespasses. I mean, he is a model prayer. Pray like this. The real Lord's prayer is in John 17 because no one can pray like this. Restore with, to me the glory which I share with you before the world began. Can you imagine the disciples standing in a circle looking at each other when he said that? He just said, restore the glory before the world began. In all of this, though, he says this at the beginning of this prayer. This is eternal life. You expect him to define eternal life. Eternal, forever, life, living, living forever, right? It's not what he says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Do you hear that? Eternal life is knowing God through Christ. This is the only time in the New Testament, by the way, that we have a record of Jesus praying in the third person. It's a little bit odd. Imagine me getting up this evening and saying, Lord, would you just pray for Rick as he preaches? You would think that a bit odd. He prays in front of them that they may know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He prays about himself in the third person, forever affirming that he is indeed the Christ. Calls himself that. Christ is our life. Fifth question, and very briefly, have I been disoriented? We're trying to declutter. Have I been disoriented? Verse four, 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He's being sarcastic. You just accept it without question. To become disoriented is to lose focus on that which is supposed to orient you. Their compass was bent. It wasn't pointing toward north. It was pointing toward something else. Satan is quite happy for us to talk about Jesus, focus on Jesus, sing about Jesus, just not the Jesus of the Bible. Let me say it again. Satan's protocol is to use our theological terms and words and concepts in his dictionary for defining them. If I could, it's silly to say, and it's just an illustration, but if I could ask God the Father to come on this stage tonight and ask him, what's on your mind? He would say, look at my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If the Holy Spirit himself could materialize and we were to ask him what's on your mind, John 14 and John 16 say, he would point to the Lord Jesus and say, focus on him. If we could bring any saint from heaven back from the glories and the enjoyment of the pleasures of God right now and stand on this stage, they would say, Focus and listen to Jesus. If we could bring any soul that's been condemned in hell back tonight and stand on the stage, I can assure you they would say, focus on Jesus. But if the demons or Satan were to be invited, I wouldn't invite them, but let's just say they barged the party and they stood on this stage, it might surprise you that they would be quite happy to talk about Jesus. Just not the one the Bible defines. Jesus understood the threat of having your minds dislodged, led astray. Think carefully about what he did that last supper. He instituted the Lord's table as a replacement for the Passover he being the final Passover lamb, right? And then he said this, listen to this, the central command, as often as you do this, do this to remember me. Why did he tell us that? Because he knew we'd forget. Do you remember him? Are you generating biblically accurate memories of Jesus because that will prevent you from being led astray from simplicity and purity of being devoted to him. How cluttered is your, is your faith? I, I'm going to confess, my, my recent revelation to myself is that I need to declutter a lot of things. I know that some of you are way older than me, but just humor me for a minute. But at 60, it's really clear that I have less years ahead of me than behind me. I just... I want to surround myself with people who want to go the same direction that I want to go and that we all are pursuing our ambition to love and to know Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith. So find the clutter. Repent of it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full 
and his wonderful face. And if you do, what's going to happen? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, fill our minds with biblically accurate memories of our Savior. Guard us from clutter and being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to him. Forgive us for our distractions, for our laziness, for our forgetfulness. Oh, Father, thank you for receiving us when we come to you with a desire for change and renewal and finding a savior and a loving shepherd because you've already judged us in your son at the cross. So help our eyes to turn to him for his glory, Lord, and for our pleasure and our good. We pray it in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.